Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Catholic retailers, business owners, and ministry leaders. Don't miss the Catholic Marketing Network Momentum 2019 event. Attend seminars that teach how to apply best business practices to any kind of business or ministry. Experience one-of-a-kind networking opportunities and browse the trade show exhibit hall full of Catholic resources and gifts from all over the world. Visit catholicmarketing.com trade show page to find out how you can be a part of this event that helps Catholics build personal and professional momentum. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Setting the record straight again with Chuck Hoffman on breadboxmedia.com. I'll start with my conclusion. The standard account of the Spanish Inquisition is mostly a pack of lies, invented and spread by the British and Dutch propagandists, war propaganda, in the 16th century during their wars with Spain and repeated ever after by the malicious or misled historians Like many slanders, it had no basis in fact, no data to support it. But historians copied from each other. That's the way they wrote history books. When there was an attractive myth that fit their agenda, they copied it. They didn't go back and look at the original data, if there was data. And soon there were millions of slanderers, all thinking they were based on somebody who had checked for the truth. None had. Hoaxes. Fake history. Eager to sustain an image of Spain as a nation of fanatical bigots. Catholics, of course. One of the most potent slanders in history is the idea of the Spanish Inquisition. The most awful descriptions of it are something that everybody agrees to. It seems that everybody buys it without investigating the real Spanish Inquisition and what really took place. But fortunately, we have extensive documents, carefully kept documents, The highly scholarly Dominicans, who had reached an apogee of organization and accuracy in careful record-keeping during the great age of scholasticism, which preceded These records were ruthlessly objective and accurate. The Dominicans kept these records, and they were sealed until recent times. They give an accurate, objective view of the proceedings of the so-called Spanish Inquisition. Note that this scary-sounding term, Inquisition, really just means inquiry, like a congressional inquiry. This is one or possibly the most damaging slander, false statements about our beloved Catholic Church. Like the word Nazi, it's become, or fascist, it's become a meme, a term that implies a very complex reality, a very evil reality. And you hear the term being used mindlessly by even famous Catholics. It's repeated by surprising people, such as Peter Robinson, 
in his series Uncommon Knowledge and speaking to David Berlinski. This Uncommon Knowledge program appeared just this week as a YouTube. Both of these people, who would you think are defenders of the Catholic Church? Indeed, Robinson is a Catholic, and in that broadcast quoted extensively from Pope Benedict. But both Robinson and Berlinski batted this term back and forth, Spanish Inquisition, several times, as if it was an accepted fact, and not a cultural meme which intellectuals could use as sort of a verbal shorthand. Another surprising person that is committing this slanderous offense is none other than Jordan Peterson, a man who has such praise for the Catholic Church that in the same podcast he said this, Catholicism seems to be the most safe place to survive this hellish world. This formidable defender of religions, star of the YouTube like no other, Jordan Peterson, who has such favorable opinions of the Catholic Church, said in that same podcast, he said, it takes me aback that the Catholic Church burned witches in the Spanish Inquisition, burned 10,000 witches. There's no truth in this at all although many witches were burned in Protestant areas. The Inquisition simply didn't take the existence of witches seriously enough to even consider the accusations. But the whole term brings to mind one of the most frightening and bloody chapters in Western history. If you ask the average Catholic in the pew, or in some unfortunate cases, even the local parish priest, you would hear them recite the old cliché, the old false meme. That, the Spanish Inquisition, was a period of terrible evil done for the Catholic Church for 240 years. But what's the truth? You may be surprised by the answer. The scholar and historian Thomas Madden, Professor Madden writes, the Spanish Inquisition didn't happen. It just didn't happen. By that he means our concept of it didn't happen at all. We know exactly what did happen. We have great records really amazingly fine records. The legend of this terrible Spanish Inquisition is based on nothing. There is no data to support it at all. What did happen, we'll talk about. I want to refer also to Rodney Stark, who is a professor of social sciences at the Institute of Studies of Religion at Baylor University. He's a Protestant, a Presbyterian, and he wrote a wonderful book, bearing false witness, in which he accuses his fellow Protestants of spreading a series of slanders, lies, attempting to damage the Catholic Church, and adhering to them even when proven wrong. In his book, he devotes a whole chapter to the Spanish Inquisition. In a moment, I'll summarize some of his statistics from that book based on these actual records. Astonishing as it may seem, the new historians of the Inquisition, including Rodney Stark, find have revealed that in contrast with the secular courts all across Europe, the Spanish Inquisition was a consistent force for justice, restraint, due process, and enlightenment. It was the most humane court in Europe. A person had a right to be represented to confront the accuser. A person was not imprisoned during the period of investigation. They were free to go was conducted calmly with ample opportunity for a person to demonstrate their innocence of any accusation of heresy. 
And the purpose of the acquisition was not to punish when they found someone who had flirted with heresy. Their purpose was to educate them, to bring them back, to cure them, and to give them a small punishment or perhaps a pilgrimage for something more serious, and to let them go back to their life. And since over 92% were cleared, most went back to their life. So out of these careful records, from the complete archives of the Inquisitions of both Aragon and Castile, which together constituted the Spanish Inquisition, these careful records demonstrate that they heard over 240 years, starting in 1540, 44,674 cases. That's a lot. That's 44,674 cases. In addition to using these records, the historians poured over diaries, letters, decrees, and other old documents. The results are solidly undeniable. Let's talk about the auto de fe, the act of faith. It consisted of a public appearance by persons convicted of various sins who then offered public confessions of their guilt and thereby were reconciled to the Catholic Church. Only rarely did an auto de fe end with their offender being surrendered to the civil authorities for execution. The Catholic Church did not conduct executions. Even so, auto de fe were not frequent. In the city of Toledo between 1575 and 1610, only 12 auto de fe's were held. This is a period of 35 years, and there were only 386 cases. Obviously, then, the tales of weekly mass burnings all across Spain are malicious fantasies. So how many did die? But if we turn to the fully recorded period of the 44,674 cases, only 826 people were executed, and they were executed by the state, keep in mind. This amounts to 1.8% of those brought to trial. All told then, during the entire period of 480 through 1700, only about 10 deaths per year were meted out by the Inquisition all across Spain. What was going on in England at the time? Well, 10 deaths a year is a small fraction of many thousands of Lutherans, Lollards, and Catholics, in addition to two of his wives that Henry VIII is credited with having boiled, burned, beheaded, or hanged. During the subsequent century, the English average 750 executions per year, many of them for minor thefts. In contrast, the few who were sentenced to death by the Spanish Inquisition usually were repeat offenders who would not repent. So if you do the math, for 240 years, there were 10 convictions and executions each year. A tiny fraction of the cases brought of the rest of the people over 90% were cleared to given small punishments or perhaps for a serious sin, a pilgrimage, something more difficult. Something lighter, perhaps a novena. All the courts of Europe used torture, but the Inquisition did so far less than other courts. It was limited to 15 minutes for a person's lifetime, and there should be no danger to life or limb, nor could blood be shed. Torture was rarely used because the Inquisitors themselves were skeptical of the efficacy and validity of torture as a method of conviction. If torture was used, the progress was carefully recorded by a clerk. Based on these data, the Inquisitor resorted to torture in only about 2% of all the cases. Prepared to the use of torture in other countries in Europe at the time, this was a much smaller fraction than any. 
the prisons operated by the Inquisition, but were by far the most comfortable and humane in Europe. It was a trend, often done. Convicted criminals would be confined to the Spanish prison, and they would blaspheme there and be transferred to, to the much more comfortable prisons of the Inquisition. Or weren't there widespread witch hunts? As far as the witch hunts were concerned, they reached their height later during the area called the Enlightenment, which should be called a darkening. A virulently anti-Catholic historian, Henry C. Lee, agreed that witch hunting was rendered comparatively harmless in Spain, and that this was due to the wisdom and firmness of the Inquisition. Consequently, the Spanish Inquisition sent nearly no witches to the stake, and those who were had been convicted for the third or fourth time often for something like abortion or herbalism. But wasn't there widespread persecution of homosexuals? Sodomy, male homosexuality. Some cases were tried also of female homosexuality. Sodomy is not broken out in the statistics based on the 44,674 cases. Because in 1509, the Suprema ordered that no action be taken against homosexuals, except when heresy was involved. And that heresy might be that homosexuality was not a sin. Even so, the Inquisition was more lenient toward sodomy and most sexual offenses than were other secular courts. If they were convicted, they were usually given short terms in the galleys. Secular courts in most of Europe treated homosexuality as a capital offense for which they burned them at the stake. On the subject of being burned at the stake, this was the way capital punishment was done in all countries in Europe during this time. The last person burned at the stake actually was in 1848, comparatively recently, in Germany. That was the last one. It's an odd thing, but the beheadings during the French Revolution become more merciful when compared against being burned at the stake. Were there book burnings? Yeah. But most of those books were pornographic books. But, but myths like this die hard. The myth of the Spanish Inquisition is so dearly held that it becomes a little chancy to bring it up face to face with people. I just ran into a tremendous collision with my Protestant friends that I have breakfast with, good clergymen, good Protestants. When, when I attempted to tell them, well, the whole thing is fake, you know, they were outraged. They didn't believe me. Where'd you get your data? And they backed me in a corner. Well, I had to bring out some stronger points about the real date and, and put them down. I didn't like doing it. I was very uncomfortable. I came away from it feeling really terrible to have revealed that a cherished belief of these gentlemen, very intelligent and educated gentlemen, was just false and they could check it. Well, they rejected what I said. This is a weekly breakfast. It's a discussion group about books that we read in concert. We were reading a section of the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Indeed, the most famous chapter, and should be the most infamous chapter, about the Grand Inquisitor. The Brothers Karamazov is considered one of the greatest works of literature ever written. But if you read what Dostoevsky actually wrote, and can understand the implications of what he wrote, it's difficult to see what he really meant by this chapter. The chapter has double and triple layers of meaning. Many people take it as Dostoevsky's opinion, but it's, but it's from a novel. It's fiction. But it comes from the mouth of an atheist, Ivan, the Karamazov brother, who is a confirmed atheist. And it's spoken to his very deeply religious monk brother, Aloysia. 
So it's hardly the account of the Spanish Inquisition of an impartial man. Yet it's often taken as this is what Dostoevsky believed. So let me read a bit from this chapter, The Grand Inquisitor. This scene involves two Karamazov brothers, Aloysia, the religious monk, the devout man, and Ivan, an atheist. Ivan has composed a poem about the Grand Inquisitor. And of course, as an atheist, it would hardly be a complimentary poem about the Grand Inquisitor and the Spanish Inquisition. But it is the most famous and infamous chapter of this great novel. And so I'm going to quote from it just a little bit. I'm going to cut a lot, of course. I just wanted to give you a little flavor of how a great genius can misuse his talents in perpetuating a slander. It's a magnificent cell job. It really is. Here it is. My story is laid in Spain, in Seville, in the most terrible time of the Inquisition, when fires were lighted every day to the glory of God and in the splendid, and in the splendid auto da fe, the wicked heretics were burned. By the way, the term auto de fe means act of faith. It doesn't refer to fire at all, which many people assume it does. Oh, of course, this was not the coming in which he will appear according to his promise at the end of time of all, at the end of time in all his heavenly glory, at which will be sudden as lightning flashing from east to west. No, he... This is God. He, it's Capalachi, visited his children only for a moment, and there where flames were crackling round the heretics, in his infinite mercy, he came once more among men in that human shape in which he walked among men for 33 years, 15 centuries ago. He came down to the hot pavements of the southern town, which on the day before almost a hundred heretics had to the glory of God been burnt by the cardinal, the Grand Inquisitor, in a magnificent auto de fe, in the presence of the king, the courts, the knights, the cardinals, the most charming ladies of the courts, and the whole population of Seville. He came softly unobserved, yet strange to say everyone recognized him. That might be one of the best passages in the poem. I mean, why they recognized him. The people are irresistibly drawn to him. They surround him. They flock about him, follow him. He moves silently in their minds with a gentle smile of infinite compassion. The sum of love burns in his heart and power shines from his eyes and their radiance shed on the people stirs their hearts with responsive love. He holds out his hands to them, blesses them, and a healing virtue comes from contact with him, even with his garments. An old man in the crowd, blind from childhood, cries out, O Lord, heal me, and I shall see thee. And as it were, scales fell from his eyes, and the blind man, and the blind man sees him. The crowd weeps and kisses the earth under his feet. Children throw flowers before him and sing, Hosanna, it is he, it is he. Repeat, it must be, it must be he. It can be no one but him. He stops at the steps of the Sevilla Cathedral at the moment when the weeping mourners are bringing in a little open white coffin. In it lies a child of seven, the only daughter of a prominent citizen. The dead child lies hidden in flowers. He will raise your child, the crowd shouts to the weeping mother. And I cut, I'll cut a bit, made them rise, 
and the maiden arises. The little girl sits up in the coffin and looks round, smiling with wide-open, wandering eyes, holding a bunch of white roses they had put in her hand. There are cries, sobs, confusion among the people, and at that moment the cardinal himself, the grand inquisitor, passes by the cathedral. He is an old man, almost ninety, tall and erect, with a withered face and sunken eyes, in which there's still a gleam of life. He's not dressed in his gorgeous cardinal's robe, as he was the day before when he was burning the enemies of the Roman church. At the moment he is wearing his coarse old monk's cassock. At a distance behind him comes his gloomy assistants and slaves and the holy guard. He stops at the side of the crowd and watches it from a distance. He sees everything. He sees them set the coffin down at his feet. The child rises up and his face darkens. He knits his thick gray brows and his eyes gleam with a sinister fire. He holds out his fingers and the bids the guards take him. And such is his power, so completely are the people cowed into submission and trembling obedience to him, that the crowd immediately makes way for the guards, and in the midst of death-like silence, they lay hands on him and lead him away. The crowd instantly bows down to the earth like one man before the old inquisitor. He blesses the people in silence and passes on. I have to interject in case you missed it. The prisoner he has taken is Jesus. The guards lead their prisoner to the close, gloomy, and vaulted prison in the ancient palace of the Holy Inquisition and shut him in it. The day passes and is followed by the dark, burning, breathless night of Seville. The air is fragrant with laurel and lemon. In the pitch darkness, the iron door of the prison is suddenly opened and the Grand Inquisitor comes in with a light in his hand. He's alone. The door is closed at once behind him. He stands in the doorway for a minute or two and gazes into his face. At last he goes up slowly, sets the light on the table and speaks. Is it thou, thou? But receiving no answer, he adds at once, Don't answer, be silent. What canst thou say indeed? I know too well what thou would say. And thou hast no right to add anything to what thou hast said of old. Why then art thou comes to hinder us? For thou hast come to hinder us, and thou knowest that. But dost thou know what will be tomorrow? I know not who thou art, and care not to know whether it is thou, or only a semblance of him. But tomorrow I shall condemn thee, and burn thee at the stake, as the worst of heretics. And the very people who, who today have kissed thy feet tomorrow at the faintest sign from me will rush to heap up the embers of thy fire. Knowest thou that? Yes, maybe thou knowest it, he added, with thoughtful penetration, never for a moment taking his eyes off the prisoner. At this point, the religious monk, Aloysia, interrupts his brother. I don't quite understand, Ivan. What does it mean? Aloysia, who had been listening in silence, said with a smile, Is it simply a wild fantasy, or a mistake on the part of the old man? Some impossible quid pro quo. Take it as the last, said Ivan, laughing. 
If you're so corrupted by modern realism and can't stand anything fantastic, if you like it to be a case of mistaken identity, let it be so. It is true, he went on laughing. The old man was ninety, and he might as well be crazy over his set idea. He might have been struck by the appearance of the prisoner. It might have been, in fact, simply the delusion of an old man of ninety, overexcited by the auto da fe of a hundred heretics the day before. And the prisoner, too, is silent. Does he look at him and not say a word? That's inevitable in any case, Simon said. The old man has told him he hasn't the right to add anything to what he has said of old. One may say it's the most fundamental feature of Roman Catholicism, in my opinion at least. All has been given to thee by the Pope, they say, and all, therefore, is still in the Pope's hands, and so there is no need for thee to come now at all. Thou must not meddle for the time at least, that's how thy speak, and write too, the Jesuits at any rate. I have read it myself in the works of the theologians. Hast thou the right to reveal to us one of the mysteries of that world from which thou hast come? My old man asks him, and answers the question for him. No, thou hast not, that thou mayest not add to what has been said of old, and mayest not take from men the freedom which thou didst exalt when thou was on earth. Whatsoever thou revealest anew will encroach on men's freedom of faith, for it will be manifest as a miracle in the freedom of their faith was dearer to thee than anything in those fifteen hundred years ago. Didst thou not often say, I will make you free? But now thou hast seen these free men, the old man adds suddenly with a pensive smile. Yes, we've paid dearly for it, he goes on looking sternly at him. But at last we have completed the work in thy name. For fifteen centuries we've been wrestling with thy freedom, but now it has ended and over for good. I don't understand again, Aloysia broke in. Is he ironical? Is he jesting? Not a bit of it. He, he claims it is a merit for himself and his church that at last they have vanquished freedom and have done so to make men happy. The Inquisitor goes on. Thou didst reject the only way by which men might be made happy. But fortunately departing, thou didst hand on the work to us. Thou hast promised, thou hast established by thy word. Thou hast given us the right to bind and unbind. And now, of course, thou canst not think of taking it away. Why then hast thou come to hinder us? Hast thou taken the world in Caesar's purple? Thou wouldst have founded the universal state, and had given universal peace. For who can rule men if, if not he who holds their conscience and their bread in his hands? We have taken the sword of Caesar, and in taking it, of course, have rejected thee and followed him. O edges are yet to come of the confusion of free thought, of their science and cannibalism. For having begun to build their tower of Babel without us, they will end, of course, with cannibalism. But then the beast will crawl to us and lick our feet and spatter them with tears of blood. And we shall sit upon the beast and raise a cup, and on it will be written, Mystery, Mystery. But then and only then the reign of peace of happiness will come for men. Oh, shall we allow them even sin? They are weak and helpless, and they will love us like children because we allow them to sin. We, tell, we shall tell them that every sin will be expiated. 
if it is done with our permission, that we allow them to sin because we love them. And the punishment for these sins we take upon ourselves. And we shall take it upon ourselves. And they shall adore us as their saviors, who have taken on themselves their sins before God. And they will have no secrets from us. We shall allow or forbid them to live with their wives and mistresses, to have or not to have children according to whether they have been obedient or disobedient. And they will submit to us gladly and cheerfully. There will be thousands of millions of happy babes and a hundred thousand sufferers who have taken upon themselves the curse of the knowledge of good and evil. It is prophesied that thou wilt come again in victory. Thou wilt come with thy chosen, the proud and the strong. But we will say that they have only saved themselves. But we have saved all. We are told that the harlot who sits upon the beast and holds in her hands the mystery shall be put to shame, that the weak will rise up again and rend her royal purple and will strip naked her loathsome body. But then I will stand up and point out to thee the thousands, millions of happy children who have known no sin and we who have taken their sins upon us for their happiness will stand up before thee and say, Judge us if thou canst and darest. Know that I fear thee not. Know that I too have been in the wilderness. I too have lived on roots and locusts. I too prize freedom with which thou hast blessed men. And I too was striving to stand among thy elect, among the strong and powerful, thirsting, to make up the number. But I awakened and would not serve madness. I turned back and joined the ranks of those who have corrected thy work, I left the proud and went back to the humble for the happiness of the humble. What I say to thee will come to pass and our dominion will be built up. I repeat, tomorrow thou shalt see that obedient flock who at a sign from me will hasten to heap up the hot cinders about the pile on which I shall burn thee for coming to hinder us. For if anyone has ever deserved our fires, it is thou. Tomorrow... I shall burn thee. And that's the end of the excerpt from the central chapter in The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. These characters are all symbolic of larger personality types, of course. But in this poem, which it is that the atheist Ivan is reciting to his brother and commenting upon it, the Grand Inquisitor comes and after Christ is performed a miracle in raising a child from the dead, arrests him, and then the next day burns him at the stake, or intends to. If we were to go on a bit, we see that's not what happens at all. In the end of Ivan's poem, Christ gives the Grand Inquisitor a kiss, and the Grand Inquisitor turns and leaves, shaken, leaving the door open for Christ to escape and be spared. You can see how appealingly lured and seductive a story this is. It just had to have really happened. It's such a dramatic confrontation, such an ingenious idea. But it's fiction. It didn't happen. This is a complete misunderstanding of Roman Catholicism. If someone thinks that, as described in this poem, that Roman Catholicism wants to hear no more from Christ, that it's on our shoulders now, 
and it's all finished at the end of the Bible. That's a kind of a weird Protestant thing that thinks the Bible is any kind of door that is shut. That's making far too much of the Bible. That's a sola scriptura kind of concept, isn't it? The church has traditions, and the traditions unfold guided by the Holy Spirit, guided by voices often of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not that big a demarcation of time. The Bible, which was not even created for over 300 years after Christ left, and Christ appeared quite frequently and talked to people. He still talks. I know people who have heard his voice, especially when we are silent enough to listen. And the events described therein, such as mass burnings, we now know that didn't happen either. Well, Dostoevsky lived thousands of miles, and he only knew of the Spanish Inquisition through, obviously, through some of the false stories. In closing, I'm going to say that Spain, in many ways, was quite different from the rest of Europe, of Christendom. It was conquered by the Muslim Jihad in the 8th century, and the whole peninsula had been a place of near-constant warfare because the borders between the Muslim and Christian kingdoms shifted rapidly over the centuries. It was in the ruler's interest to practice a fair degree of tolerance for other religions. There was uniquely a separation of the powers of church and the powers of state, overlapping but separate. So, as historians have said and Madden has said, and Thomas Madden has said, the ability of Muslims, Christians, and Jews to live together, called by the Spanish convenienza, was a rarity in the Middle Ages. Indeed, Spain was the most diverse and tolerant place in medieval Europe. England expelled all of its Jews in 1200. France did the same in 1306. Yet, in Spain, Jews thrived at every level of society. In many ways, the establishment of the Inquisition was in an effort to protect Jews from anti-Semitic elements within the culture. This is Chuck Coughlin, setting the record straight on breadboxmedia.com. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019 and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.